10 years ago, my wife Kelly and I were in the midst of a great deal of heartache surrounding the possibility of having children. We were in the midst of our seventh miscarriage. We'd experienced three failed domestic adoptions, and we were trying to get an international adoption moving forward. Uh, that time, as you can imagine, was an extremely hard time, relationally, emotionally, spiritually. And during that time of heartache, Kelly was reminded of this proverb here in Proverbs 13:12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now taken by itself, it's a straightforward maxim that states the obvious that when an object of hope that one has been waiting for finally comes, it brings joy and life and excitement. And this is true, is it not? Right? All of us get excited about Christmas, you know, because the thing we're hoping for, how many of you were kids that waited and waited and waited for that toy and finally got it, right? Now, when we look at this verse a little bit further, and we look at it within the context of the other verses, you can quickly see that it's speaking of more than just that earthly fulfillment of objects in which we place our hope. Uh, look at the next few verses with me, verses 13 through 19. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. In everything, the prudent acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. And then we see the closure of kind of the bookends of this section. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. What it's stating is that the desire fulfilled is actually wisdom through following God's will and his view of good and evil. It's not the hope of that object, that earthly object or that thing that we're waiting for. As Kelly studied this in the midst of her pain, she came to me and said she had realized that the tree of life she should have been looking for in the midst of all that heartache was actually Jesus. As much as our heart's desire was children, and this is a beautiful thing, what we were called to desire most deeply was Christ. If he became our desire, we would have our hope fulfilled no matter what came about in life because hope deferred is so difficult to endure, is it not? Those of you who've struggled like Kelly and I with having children, with miscarriages, you know exactly what it's like. And many of us in this room hope in such beautiful, wonderful things. Marriage, a spouse, sexual intimacy, friendship, children, retirement, rest, emotional healing, relational healing, just feeling at peace. These are good things, are they not? They're good things. No one would begrudge us wanting these things. And yet, to look to those things in life as the fulfillment of what we desire often only brings heartache and disappointment when they fail to live up to our expectations and needs. I've often said that one of the reasons I feel like a terrible father sometimes is because I go through the natural progression of being a dad. I wanted children so bad, and as any of you who are parents would admit when you're being honest under truth serum, sometimes it's hard to be a parent, right? <laughs> sometimes you're like, I wish I had a day off, right? And, and you feel guilty almost, especially Kelly and I in our situation. We feel guilty sometimes like we wanted our three children so much and we still love them so much, and yet sometimes it would be nice to have a date night, right? And so as Christians, we then buckle down and we tell ourselves that, yes, these things won't satisfy us, and we begin to look toward the Christian walk as the solution. 
We may not admit it, but we think if I become more righteous and I just buckle down, then life will go well and God will reward me. But this false prosperity gospel eventually falls short as well. And so we look to heaven and to the life to come to be our hope. Maybe this life is melancholy and depressing and it's just not going to go how I wanted it. And so it's got to be heaven. It's got to be heaven that's my hope. But that too fails us as we're blinded by the world around us and doubt begins to creep in and we find ourselves caught up in the cares of the world as we talked about last week. And so we find ourselves often sad and hopeless, doubting our faith. But could it be, dear brothers and sisters, that we have had our eyes on the wrong sources of hope the whole time? Could it be that we, like Kelly and I those 10 years ago, needed to have our eyes refocused onto not heaven, not eternity, but Jesus and his message that his kingdom has begun and we are part of what will one day fully come? It's not waiting for that day far off. It's looking at it today. And so as we look at Mark's gospel, we need to remember that it was read out loud in the gatherings of the early Christians. These were men and women under the first great persecution of the Roman Empire. They were watching men and women they knew and loved be martyred in the Colosseums. And so they cried out for hope. They had a hope deferred that was making their hearts sick. And as they listened with anticipation to the gospel we've been reading through, the gospel according to Mark, the reader would have arrived at the parable of the sower that we talked about last week, describing that some of the hearts are hardened to the truth and others are fertile ground, ready to hear the truth of Jesus and the kingdom of God that he has brought forth. But this parable, the parable of the sower, as hopeful as it was meant to be, it leaves on a sad note, doesn't it? Out of the four types of soil, only one brings forth fruit. And while it does bring forth fruit in 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, as we talked about last time, the context and culture of the hearers of the day was that they were gathering in secret church meetings so as not to be found out or martyred. They were huddling together under fear of persecution. And they were to ask, how were they ever to survive hiding in secret with such low rates of conversion as those stated in the parable of the sower. We can barely get out to even say that we're Christians, and if three out of those four times that we do, it ends without any fruit, what are we doing? It may have felt as though they were losing ground, not gaining it. You ever feel like that in Christianity? As you look around, you look at the United States, you look at the world, and you think, man, is Christianity growing? Is the kingdom moving? Well, these contemporary hearers needed encouragement that sowing the seed of the gospel of Christ, the story of Christ himself, was indeed something in which hope and fruitfulness could be found. And even more, they needed to understand that the hope they were waiting for had already arrived in Jesus and was growing each and every day. And so the author of the gospel, according to Mark, gives three parables that we'll look at today to give hope to those hearing. And this morning, I believe that we will greatly benefit from this hope. And in so doing, we will learn that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, and the parables that he uses to explain it today, they are a tree of life from which our desires can be fulfilled and hope can be given. Our hope needs to be found in the kingdom, and specifically the king that reigns over it. So let's take a look here and read the first parable of our text. Would you turn back to Mark chapter 4 with me, verse 21, and we'll look at the first parable. And Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. 
With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now you'll notice that these same parables are in the other synoptic gospels of Luke and Matthew. If you go and find them, you'll, you'll see that they're almost the same. But you'll also notice that they have different placement and contexts in those gospels than they do here in Mark. What that tells us is that each of the gospel authors understood the application and interpretation of these parables differently, and so they put them in different contexts. Now, this might cause concern for you. You might think, wait a minute, what? They interpreted them differently? But remember that the literary arrangement of the authors and the scribes who edited them was moved by the Holy Spirit just as much as the original content. And so while Jesus was the original author of these parables, and he states down there in verses 33 through 34, it says, with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Notice that because if we were supposed to take it exactly in the format that Jesus had intended, Mark would have probably quoted, and this is the application Jesus gave. How do we know that? He just did that exact same thing for the sower. So he's purposefully taking these parables and using them in this context for a specific reason, and we are to look at it and understand that we're to interpret it as Mark gives it to us. So we know that this is inspired, and this is for us to understand. And the first parable that we see here, it's to tell us this. The gospel of the kingdom of God is to be declared, not hidden. It's to be declared, not hidden. Now, you can understand why this was an important thing to say to a hiding church gathering in secret places. I don't know about you, but I would be the same way. Wouldn't you hide if you were under persecution? Yeah. But Mark is trying to say it's the, a gospel of the kingdom is to be declared, not hidden. Now, the lamp that it talks about here is not any old oil-burning lamp, right? It's not just any lamp, kind of like a, we just watched Aladdin last night with our kids. It's not any old burning oil lamp, right? It's got something special about it. But this one doesn't have a genie. This one is more important. The underlying Greek grammar here should technically be translated, does the lamp come? Does the lamp come to be put under a basket? Now, that's an odd way of phrasing it, isn't it? The answer for any lamp is no, lamps are meant to illuminate and give light. They're not to be squelched. But the author seems to be pinpointing the one who is the lamp. Notice it has the, right? It doesn't in our text, but in the Greek it has the, the lamp. And it starts with, does the lamp come? Not is the lamp brought as if it's this object that somebody else has to bring. The innate Greek says, does the lamp come? Now, this is hugely important to understand because this is very reflective of what the gospel according to John says about Jesus. Notice this from John 1, 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the baptizer. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Who's this talking about? Jesus. Jesus is the light. John the baptizer was not the light of the world, but he gave illumination true to the true light, Jesus the Christ. And Jesus, John says, is the incarnate form of the very wisdom and truth of God that brings light. It gives light to our path, as the Psalms say. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. He is this lamp and this light. 
Now the question then becomes, did he come into the world proclaiming the kingdom of God and proving it through his ministry, preaching, death, resurrection, and ascension so that it could be hidden? What's the answer? No, he didn't. Now, looking at many Christians' lives, maybe even our own, we have to ask the question, the the same question. Did he come to do all of this so that it would be hidden? So that we could wait for someone else to declare it? One would undeniably answer, that's not the case. But looking at our lives, somebody might answer, well, yes, that is the case. He did do all these things so that it can be hidden, so that it can be a quote-unquote private faith. Because many of us as Christians are so fearful to proclaim the truth that Jesus is Savior and King. Hans, that's kind of weird. Like, i got to go to my contemporary workplace with a bunch of people who are secular and tell them that this guy that died 2,000 years ago is the king of a kingdom you can't see? They're going to think I'm crazy. Yes, they are. That's the truth. Because you are. You're abnormal. You're different. You're saved by his blood. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. We are to be those who follow in the footsteps of the ultimate sower of the parable directly preceding this one. We're to take the truth of God's kingdom and declare it to all, to scatter it. We're to tell the world about Jesus, about his ministry, about his death, and about his resurrection, and about the fact that he currently sits enthroned as our king. To add to the motivation, Jesus continues. Pay attention, he says. If you have more, you'll get more. In other words, the seed that you have that's germinated into you being converted and saved, it's going to keep growing, and you're going to have more fruit if you actually utilize it. In other words, if you take the seed and cast cast it into the fertile soil and you produce fruit, proclaiming the kingdom, showing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, what you have will be multiplied and grow in fruitfulness. It's amazing how many times I'll be talking to somebody and they'll say, oh, Hans, I just feel so dry in my walk. Okay, when was the last time you read your Bible? Ah, I don't know, a couple months ago. Uh Uh-huh. And what do you expect? Honestly, what do you expect? I just don't feel like Jesus is meeting me anymore. When was the last time you sat in stillness and silence and solitude and read your Bible and got on your knees? Ah, I don't know if I've ever done that. Uh Uh-huh. To those that are given some, more will be given if you press in, if you take what you have and you make it grow, if you pour into it. But if you do not seek to know or understand or proclaim the word, if you wait for someone else to hand feed it to you, then the word of God and the message of his kingdom will start to fade away. Even the small seed of gospel truth you have will eventually be taken from you and you will eventually be left without the truth. Just as a marriage that doesn't have new life and new love and new passion breathed into it by the free will choice to love your spouse, just as it eventually dies and the people, quote unquote, fall out of love, which I still don't know how you can do, right? Just as that still happens in relationships, it's the same way with Jesus. Do you really think that Jesus will just keep on pouring into you if it's not resulting in any fruit? The answer is no. Eventually, it will stop. Why would he, a perfect gentleman, continue to force you in relationship when you are showing by your life that you want nothing further? The gospel of the kingdom of God, the message of the light of God that has come into the world cannot be hidden. It cannot be protected. It's to be proclaimed from the mountaintops. It's to be released from its cage, so to speak. 
You see, Satan does not hold back in his accusations and mischaracterizations of Christ through false gospels and lies. It's amazing how quickly false gospels spread. But those of us who know the truth, who know the biblical gospel, are we not supposed to be at war to contradict those lies with the truth of Jesus as the Bible declares it? We sit back and we read articles about all the prosperity gospel preachers and we go, oh, look at all that heresy. And then we go about our business as if suddenly somehow that heresy is going to stop being proclaimed. Why is Salem full of bad, errant theology? Because those who know truth are unwilling to speak about it. Our lives lived in selfish pursuit every day prove that this is the case. We prove that we don't want to proclaim the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the message of the deferred hope of the Bible. He is the very thing that the people that surround you in the the lost world want and desire. Mankind has been caught in the curse of sinful rebellion against the righteous and holy creator God, and you and I were born into a world broken by sin so much that we elevated and worshipped ourselves rather than the creator. And again, our selfish lives lived in selfish pursuits every day prove that this is the case. God, in his great love of his creation, sent word to us through his prophets from Moses until Malachi of the truth that he is God, he's king of the universe, and he desires relationship with each of us. He initiated his people Israel so that from them a Messiah, a savior king, might come to save us from our sin and redeem us to restored relationship with the Father God. And Jesus is that Messiah. Do you believe that, church? Jesus is that Messiah, that anointed one who took on the death that you and I deserve. He died on the cross and three days later he rose again to prove and proclaim his victory over sin and death and be enthroned as the rightful heir of the kingdom of God. And he poured out his spirit into your hearts and mind and the minds of all of those who follow him the world over and declared that we are to take his message to all that they might know the truth of life everlasting. This is a message to be declared, not hidden. Dear brother or sister, do you know this truth? Is it core to your identity and who you are that you are part of the kingdom of God, a son or a daughter of the Most High King? And is this gospel proclamation on the edge of your tongue waiting to be released so that the second somebody says, hey, what is the deal with the hope you have? Are you, oh, let me tell you, oh my goodness, I've been waiting for years to tell you about Jesus. Can I tell you? Do you have a few days? Can I sit, you want to sit down and talk about it, right? Are you waiting with bated breath to tell someone about the king that is so loving that he died on your behalf and poured his Holy Spirit into you? Or are you scared to death that somebody's going to ask because of the ramifications that you might be seen as weird or one of those Jesus freaks? Each of us need to know and practice and be ready to give this truth. We need to be praying that the Lord might open up doors for us to declare it to those that surround us. It's to be proclaimed, not hidden. Amen? But then we pause, and the original hearers, small in number, might pause and ask, so what if we do proclaim it? The growth is so minimal. Remember the, the sower? Three of the, the soils, they don't produce any fruit. They eventually die out. Well, let's look at the next section here, the parable of the seed that grows. Verse 26, And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. 
He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What we learn from this parable, following up with the last one here, is this. The original author was speaking to the people of God then and now, do not give up. The kingdom is growing, even if it's not obvious to you. Do not give up. The kingdom is growing. In contrast to the parable of the sower, this parable has a man scattering seed, but the focus, as you can see from the last two verses, is not the sower, as it was in the other parable, but the seed itself. The sower is there. He is active, but somewhat inconsequential. Now, this could be Jesus, as the other sower was, or it could more likely be anyone who proclaims the word of the kingdom, you and me. In fact, in verses 27 and 28, this sower has little to no power, control, or knowledge. He seems a bit like a blockhead, so I like to put myself right there. That seems like it's perfectly fitting for me, right? He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know how the seed sprouts. He doesn't know how the word goes out and does not return void, and yet somehow it does. The earth itself is the one in control as the greater power in this parable, and there is a greater power when the gospel goes out than just you or me. It's the Holy Spirit. And whether the sower wills it or not, this seed will indeed grow and it will produce fruit. I can honestly say from my life, some of the most uh, fruitful times in ministry have been some of the things I thought were most inconsequential. The hug here, the kind word there, uh, the word of correction there, that I thought, that's not going to be any big deal. And then that person comes back to me years later and says, Hans, did you know that when you said this, I'm like, I don't remember what I said yesterday. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Six years ago? But you said this, and man, the Lord took it, and he, oh man, praise God for that. Praise God, it's not according to my view, it's according to his view and his work through his power. Whether the sower wills it or not, the seed will indeed grow, and it will produce fruit inconsequential at first, then barely visible to those that might look closely, but then eventually in full view of anyone that is looking. Notice this does not mean apathy on the part of the sower, but rather trust that sowing and that action alone is enough to see that the fruit will come, enough to trust. And eventually enough fruit will be there that the sickle is put in and the harvest is taken. For the people of the day alive roughly 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, this would have been welcome news. From their vantage point, Christianity is being squashed and snuffed out by Nero. For many hearing this, they would have cried out that the light of the gospel was growing dimmer and dimmer and dimmer as people were hung, dipped in oil and hung on lampposts and lit on fire as Christians, the light of the world, Nero would proclaim as they were fed to the lions in the Colosseum. They were being martyred by the day. And yet that persecution was occurring in the Roman Empire, an empire that had vast expanse and had roads and shipping lanes, an empire that thrived on trading the same oppressed people that were drawn to hear the good news of the Exodus God come forth in Jesus Christ. And it was those inconsequential slaves and servants that are the ones that spread abroad the news of the gospel, While some were being martyred, others were being shipped to the far corners of the known world to serve as slaves. And there, as slaves, they proclaimed the good news of the gospel. Can you imagine their fear? Not just, will my coworkers think I'm a Jesus freak, but I may lose my head if I talk about a different king than Nero. And from each of their limited line of sight, this probably did not seem like much, but from God's viewpoint, the seed was sprouting. 
Put yourself in the shoes of those original Christians for a moment. Honestly, just pause and think to yourself, what was it like to be in their shoes? Not, no knowledge of whether the gospel was spreading. No internet. No nothing except what they could see with their myopic view. Imagine the heartache and the sadness they felt that the gospel was not gaining ground in the midst of persecution. Really think about that. And now... I want you to pull back for a second and I want you to watch the growth of the seed from God's viewpoint. I want to show you a short two-minute video that shows how that seed grew from a small singular seed that died on that day on Calvary into what it is today, getting closer and closer to a fruitful harvest, ready to be brought about and brought in by the master of the harvest. If you're listening online, you can find this clip on YouTube under uh, the user Business Insider detailing the spread of Christianity. But why don't you all look to the screen here and watch this as Christianity spread. those original first and second generation Christians have ever guessed what would have happened? From their myopic viewpoint, could they have ever known that the gospel would literally be taken across the ocean that they thought was the edge of the world and given to native people groups? Now, we can argue all day long about the damage that was done by white colonists and by imperialism and all those things, and that is very true, but at the same time, even in the midst of that brokenness, God was still moving and using even slaves, even broken people to spread the gospel in a way that the proclamation that Jesus was king spread throughout the entire earth. By the end of many of the lives uh, of, of the first century Christians, the gospel would have spread far into cities within the Roman Empire. Dear brothers and sisters, our myopic view of the world is not the truth. Our reading of CNN or Fox News and then our determination that Christianity is growing or shrinking is not the truth. As we speak, the seed is growing. We might ask, What's, what difference are we making? 
What difference are we making uh, as we support bush pastors in Burkina Faso that each have churches of maybe 30 to 50 people? Well, look at the graphic from the video. Do you see that space where the gospel hasn't yet reached that that arrow is pointing to? Guess what area that is? The bush of Burkina Faso. The gospel spreads because of your faithful generosity and support and your willingness to not let it die, but to keep pressing. What difference is it making to support the Taves family in Indonesia as they support missionary work and pastors, indigenous pastors? Well, look at this graphic from the video, that bottom arrow there. Do you know where that's pointing? That's pointing to Indonesia. The gospel spreads because of your faithful generosity and support. But Hans, you might say, Christianity is losing ground. Look at the state of our country. But look again at that same clip from the video. One of the areas that is noted as not having the gospel spread is China. One of the largest awakenings of Christian revival in the world right now is occurring in China in underground churches. The spread of the gospel in specific places may recede at times, as we saw in that graphic during the Middle Ages especially. But overall, it's growing to fill the earth. And when Christ returns, it will fill the earth in full. That's a guarantee and a promise by Christ himself. Dear brothers and sisters, do not grow weary. The Apostle Paul said this to strengthen the church's resolve. When he wrote the church of Galatia, he said this in Galatians 6, 7 through 10, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul takes the same picture of the words of Christ, the word of God being sown in our lives through teaching. And we then are to see that it brings forth fruit in our lives and respond with doing good to all around us, especially the church. And in so doing, we will have times of weariness. How many of you are tired even today? Yes. But recognize that while we do not know the hour, the harvest is indeed coming. This idea of the harvest comes from the Old Testament where it spoke of the coming resurrection and the establishment of God's kingdom and the judgment of the wicked. It's coming, dear saints. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be this year, but it will come. And just because you die before it comes does not mean it's not coming. It will come. So prepare for the harvest. Is your life preparing for the harvest to come? Or are you like the proverb that says that you're not preparing for the harvest and when the harvest comes, you will reap destruction? Do not give up. The kingdom is growing even if it is not obvious. The question is, are you participating in it? And this leads us to the last parable. Take a look at Mark chapter 4, verse 30. He declares to the original hearers and to us today, do not give up. The kingdom is growing, even if it's not obvious. And then he finishes with this parable, starting in verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the year can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. 
He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Now, this is an odd plant, isn't it? It's this mustard seed that grows into a bush, but it has branches. Branches, and the word there is branches as of a tree that birds can come and nest in. Now, the author of Mark brings us this last parable with a a verse of buildup. And what he's saying in this is, have hope. The kingdom will eventually conquer the world. Have hope. The kingdom will eventually conquer the world. Notice that it is a progression through this. And then it'll step from these parables into a new statement and multiple stories that speak to the authority of God. Because the question that the hearers would have after they listened to this, this is great that it's going to fill the earth. It's great that we should have hope in this conquering. But how's that going to happen? And then immediately the speaker starts telling the stories of Jesus having control of nature, control of the demonic, control of all sorts of things. His authority reigns. But here he pauses and says, have hope. The kingdom will eventually conquer the world. I don't know about you, but I get so tired looking at the world. It's so sad. You know, years ago, for some reason, my ability to, you know, just delude myself and look past all the brokenness in the world went away. I don't know if it was starting counseling or more pastoring or what, but it just went away. And if you look even a little bit at the world around us, you'll weep with sadness because it's just so broken. How can we ever have hope in this? Well, the hope is, is that the kingdom of God is on the move. And it's not going to be stopped. It will eventually conquer all that darkness and bring finally the light of Jesus Christ into the world. The author of Mark brings us this last parable with that first verse of buildup. He starts with, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? You might think to yourself, well, we already have had two. Why not just keep going? Why pause and say that? Well, he's pausing purposefully to ask the question, what can we compare the kingdom of God with? And for those who were Hebrew listeners or people that were familiar with the Hebrew Bible, they could go back and look at the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. So we want to ask ourselves the the question this morning, what did the ancient writers of Scripture compare it with? When we talked about kingdoms in the Old Testament, when we talk about strong kingdoms that are going to conquer, what did we talk about? And what we'll find is that we see a similar idea of this idea of vegetation or trees uh, filling the earth. Let's first look to Daniel. Why don't you go with me to Daniel chapter 4 in the Old Testament? In Daniel 4.10, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes to Daniel and asks for him to tell him uh, the reality of what his dream was. And so in Daniel 4.10, Nebuchadnezzar says this, The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. And its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. That's a pretty big tree, right? Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. Interestingly, and then he says, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. Does it sound familiar? And all the flesh was fed from it. Okay, pause there and go over to uh, the same chapter, but look at verse 20. This is what Daniel, or his other name is Belteshazzar, says, 
Verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field, the shade, uh, found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. Okay, so he obviously reiterates that it's important to understand the simile here, the metaphor. Verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Okay, notice the metaphor there. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar's power and reign and authority in the midst of the kingdom that he reigns over. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful king whose dominion or kingdom had reached the ends of the known world. And this tree would eventually be chopped down. To state this imagery, this tree, the idea of a tree was used. Let's go back a little bit to Ezekiel 31. Look with me, go to the left and go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 31. We'll read a little bit here in Ezekiel 31. And notice the metaphor that's used. This is speaking to Pharaoh, the king or the sovereign over the kingdom of Egypt. And he's going to be compared to the king and the kingdom of Assyria that was larger before it. Verse 1 of chapter 31 in Ezekiel. In the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, came to me. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its bows grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its bows. Does this sound familiar, guys? Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its bows. Neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Now, if we had time today, we'd go back and look at the tree of life that was in the garden and we'd go all the way forward to Revelation that the tree of life will be restored in the new heavens and the new earth and how this imagery is used as a theme to be traced throughout the Bible. You can do that on your own time. But today, let's just focus in on the metaphor. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches were fallen and its bows have been broken in all the ravines of the land and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. Notice that he interplays the people of the world and the beasts of the world, almost as if the same symbolism. Verse 14, all this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds and that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height for they are all given over to death to the world below among the children of man with those who go down to the pit. 
Short answer here, what is he saying? He's saying any kingdom that raises itself above God will be destroyed. But not the United States, right? No, the United States too. Every single kingdom that raises itself above God will be destroyed. Why? Because God is the one and only sovereign. There is no other. Ezekiel uses imagery of trees to picture nations, specifically to warn this king, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that unless he humbles himself before God, he will fall in destruction because of his pride. And he shows this through the example of Assyria, this towering tree that got cut down and the birds and the creatures all trampled on this one once powerful kingdom. See this imagery and how it plays through the Old Testament? Go back a little bit to Ezekiel 17. Take a look at Ezekiel 17, and we're going to see the same imagery used, but here we're going to see it used in order to provoke hope in Israel, that Israel would one day be restored to a place of prominence. Ezekiel 17, and take a look at verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Does this sound familiar, church? Okay. And then he says, And all the trees of the field shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it. Here Ezekiel is stating that God will take Israel, the smallest and most insignificant of the nations, and use them to germinate into the largest and most powerful of all the nations, symbolized here by trees, so that other nations may notice And individuals from those other nations, Gentiles, pictured by the birds, will find refuge in this kingdom to come. Now again, I don't have time to get into it, but if you go and look at imagery used by Paul in the book of Romans about a, uh, a branch being cut off and grafted in and then growing from there, all of this imagery makes a ton of sense because Israel as a nation, as we see it today, a secular nation is not what this is talking about. It's talking about the true Israel of God made of his people that grew up out of the people of Israel, the people of Abraham, and has now moved into this place where both Jew and Gentile come together into the church, the bride of Christ, are that nation, that kingdom. All we need is for the, kingdom to, the, the king to return to reign in fullness. But notice the humble beginnings. Jesus, back in Mark 4, uses a similar idea, not a twig, but in Mark chapter 4, he uses this idea of the mustard seed. Those are mustard seeds in that picture. They're tiny. They're like the tip of a sharpened pencil end. And they were inconsequential. And yet, they're used parabolically throughout the Middle East to describe something inconsequential growing into something huge. And Jesus here uses this. Some commentators think it may have been a slight on the Pharisees, like, hey, look at how tiny your kingdom actually is, right? The mustard seed. Either way, he was saying something inconsequential, such as a humble, poor rabbi and carpenter in rural Galilee would be planted, but from this tiny seed, something amazing would occur. 
His death and resurrection would cause a great spreading of seed to happen. And this is where our reading from John 12 that was read earlier makes more sense. Remember that Jesus said this in John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat or a seed falls into the earth and, what's that word? Dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about himself and he's talking about you and me. If we die to all the hopes and desires of this earth as primary, right? That doesn't mean they go away. It doesn't mean we stop wanting children or wanting marriage or wanting good jobs. But if we make our primary desire Jesus and his kingdom and let the rest die, he will make seed and he will make fruit come from that seed. In the death of Jesus, he sowed into the earth his earthly body, so that he might resurrect in a new holy body as enthroned king of a growing kingdom that he would one day inherit when its harvest was full. And just as the black mustard seed would grow from this small size to over eight to 10 feet, guys, I'm 6'10", that's up here, okay? Tiny mustard seed to up here. The kingdom of God started small, but will grow to fill the earth. You saw that video a moment ago, but recognize that even in the time of Mark, the original hearers of this, this was the world that they knew. Just the Mediterranean and barely outside of that. They thought this was the known world, and if it could spread to the ends of this, then man, the gospel would have spread to the ends of the earth. It happened by 600. Not 2,000, 600. It had, quote unquote, filled the earth. That's how fast it grew. And now, how far has that seed spread to the Gentile world? To the ends of the earth and much more. And yes, every area of the earth is not completely filled by gospel-following, Bible-believing Christians, but the gospel's spreading. Fewer and fewer people groups can say, yeah, I don't know the name Jesus, because of the faithful witness of missionaries and indigenous tribes, and the faithfulness of people like you to help those indigenous pastors move forward. Don't lose hope, brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God is expanding so that people from every tribe and tongue might find their refuge in the gospel. And one day it will fill the earth and be the fullness of that tree of life in which the whole world can find their rest. From Christ's death comes life for all mankind. And as each of us join him in laying down our lives so that the gospel might be shown and proclaimed in our actions and relationships and words, growth of the kingdom comes and fruit is brought forth. You see, each of us are participating in this cycle of death to life. It's the very story of the Bible. But you might say, Hans, this is all wonderful and good, and I look at these world maps, but I'm not a missionary. I've got a boring life. I wake up in the morning, I make my kids breakfast, I go about the day, I clean up, you know, spit up from their mouth. Like, how am I going to spread the kingdom, you might say? Or you might say, Hans, I go and I sit in a cubicle all day. I, I can't spread the gospel. What am I supposed to do? My, my life is mundane. There is nothing mundane about it. You're surrounded by people people that need to know the gospel. Dear brothers and sisters, each and every day, whether you know it or not, you are participating in this sowing and reaping. As you bring the teachings of Christ and the law of God to bear in your daily walk and in your relationships, you are sowing and reaping. As you fight to live by the Spirit instead of the flesh, you are sowing so that you might reap eternal glory. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We've got two places we'll turn and then we'll be finished. Go to 1 Corinthians with me. And take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, 35.
Not only are we sowing seed through our proclamation of the gospel, we are sowing seed that will germinate and grow into fruitfulness with every battle we wage against our own flesh and the kingdom of darkness. Take a look there at verse 35. Paul's speaking about the resurrection to come. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this mystery, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Just FYI, for those of you that grew up with this, that is not talking about the rapture. What's the context it's being spoken of? The resurrection, okay? This is not the rapture. It's not gone in the twinkling of an eye for those of you who've heard of that before. This is the resurrection, okay? In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Can I get an amen? amen. As we fight to live by the Spirit, we are sowing towards the kingdom in huge ways so that those who are perishing might see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and desire to taste and see that the Lord is good. And as we saw earlier, we are not growing weary in this, but recognize that we are being changed each and every day. And as we see that change come forth, we are to take the glory and the power of the Spirit in our lives to make us more like Christ so that he may be glorified. This is what Paul said in a later letter to the Corinthians. Turn with me just to the right to 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18, it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen? We not only hope in the fullness of the resurrection to come, We also hope in the fact that as we lay our lives down in submission to Christ and to one another daily, we will see the fruit of the kingdom to come in our own hearts and relationships. It is in this moment by moment leading toward an eternal hope that we find our desires fulfilled. Hope deferred makes a heart sick, but as our greatest desire to see Christ glorified in our lives and in the world to come, as it actually comes, It becomes for us a tree of life that reaps eternal glory. Have hope, brothers and sisters. The kingdom will eventually conquer the world. If you believe in Jesus and you believe in the Bible, this is either total nonsense that you should stop believing or it is the absolute truth that is coming. Do you believe the harvest is coming? And are you preparing for it? The citizens of the kingdom will find rest in the kingdom that conquers, and the spirit will one day fully overcome the flesh, which you obediently wage war upon each and every day. What a man plants, what a man sows, that he will also reap. On this Lord's day, I have two quick items of application. First, I pray that we can hear the hope delivered by Mark to the Christian community. As we wait in this time between the initiation of the kingdom and its final coming in Christ's return, let us hope in him and his gospel. Let us hope in his kingdom that is here but not yet. And when we get to see gospel work done, when we get to see kingdom work come, as Dallas was expressing to us in this awesome family that we get to know and partner with, right? When we see that, we need to rejoice because that's the kingdom. When we watch one another grow, when we watch one another take feedback and lay down their life and grow in maturity spiritually and emotionally, we see the kingdom come. We rejoice in that. When we see brothers and sisters step into the kingdom who weren't there before saying, I want to follow Jesus, we rejoice in that, knowing all the while that the kingdom is coming. Let us hope in the kingdom that is here but not yet. Second, I pray that this hope will motivate us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the coming of his kingdom more so than ever before. As we have the opportunity, I pray that we will speak the gospel with abandon. I pray that we will go and make disciples in our home, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods like never before. Brothers and sisters, who will you pray for this week that their heart might be open to hearing the gospel? 
What relationships with non-believers or apathetic self-proclaimed Christians do you need to look to as opportunities to call them to worship their king in passionate response? In what people is there a seed of the gospel germinating that you might not see but need to keep watering? Maybe a person you've given up on, but you need to keep watering. Internally, what issues of flesh need to be killed in your heart this week and surrendered to Christ so that you can sow that you might reap an eternal glory? These are questions to ponder, questions to act on. So this week, let us move forward in hope and full knowledge that the kingdom of Christ is coming. The harvest is coming. And let us prepare for that harvest in each of our hearts as we await his kingdom. Let us go and make disciples as we pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours, Jesus, is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever.